I invite you to remain standing for our scripture reading. We'll read from Revelation chapter 1. Let's read God's good word together. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know who needs this reminder, but Thanksgiving is this week. It's in four days, and hopefully that was not surprising to you because, you know, I I know many, well, I should say many of you are preparers. In my family, I'm kind of the under-functioning member whenever it comes to holidays, and so they're like, okay, just tell Brandon what time to be there, and we won't expect anything else. And, And usually I can meet that expectation, give or take, like an hour or so, and... And so that's, that's how it works in our family. But, but as you know, there are a few things that have to happen between now and Thursday, right? And, uh, you know, there are turkeys that have to be thawed unless you're doing the microwave challenge, right? And telling your mom that, hey, mom, how long do I need to microwave this an hour before? Anyway, don't do that to your mom. That's not nice. But we, but we have all of these things coming up and, and all of these things we have to do. And as we get into the Christmas season, which I, I don't know, started like October 15th, Right. And, and all the stuff you have to buy and the plans you have to make. And then you've got a Christmas party for your family and also for this part of the family because they don't talk to them. And then you've got stuff for work and for school and for your book club and every other thing. And then just like some random one that you walked into and they invited you and so you showed up. But, but our, our schedules just get crazy this time of year. And so I wonder, how do you feel about time these days? Like good? Great? Just super relaxed and everything's all good and I've got all the time in the world? Like, how many of you, okay, not, I don't see any hands. Not very many of us probably feel that way. We actually did an entire sermon series on this just the last five weeks, so if you missed any of those, go back and check them out on our YouTube channel. They're awesome. I need to watch, like, one a day, and uh, remember not to hurry. But, uh, but we have a difficult relationship with time. For many of us, it's precious, it's fleeting, and you have to turn on the clicker to change the slide. It's precious, it's fleeting, and it's scarce. If we just had a little bit more, than, or maybe if we just had a lot more, then we would be okay. Anyone feeling that? That's what we're going to talk about today. So I'm really excited to be with you. I'm Pastor Brandon Blackson, the executive pastor here, and it's great to be with you on this Christ the King Sunday. And for everyone online, we are uh, great to be with you. We're great to be with you. We're so glad to be with you. We've had some technical bumps, and so thank you for sticking with us. It's really good to be worshiping with you today. But uh, we're, we're celebrating Christ the King Sunday and, uh, and thinking about how, how does the way we follow Christ affect our time. And one of the things that's really interesting, you know, time is one of those things that that we don't have a lot of control over. It's kind of like air. We just kind of move through it and uh, don't really, I guess we do think about it, but we don't think about how we think about it. We don't really get to the meta level a lot, unless you're a philosophy major, then you probably do it a lot. But but the way thing, the way people think about time today is not the way people have always thought about it. The way we think about it today is not the way people have always thought about it. There are different things that have happened throughout history that make us think about time differently than people did centuries ago. And so before the invention of the clock, 
like you, you thought about it differently afterward than you could have beforehand. That's even true with the sundial. And, and now that we have the time on our wrists or on, in our pockets, I, I had a watch, but it's kind of covered by my sleeve. Um, there it is. But, but we think about it differently than we could. We, can't, we couldn't think about it in the way that we do today, centuries ago. And one of the things that's really interesting is just to think about, you know, how would, we, how would people in Jesus' day have thought about time? But this is what philosopher Charles Taylor says about the way we think about time today. He says, We have constructed an environment in which we live a uniform, univocal, I had to look that word up, it means having the same meaning. We live a uniform, univocal, secular time, which we try to measure and control in order to get things done. I mean, does that sound about right? And when you think about that, it's interesting, like, how else would you think about time? But, like, of course it's something that I have to control so I can get things done. We, we talk about it as something that we manage, like, is anyone, like, a time management ninja? I read all kinds of stuff, and I'm really bad at most of it, but I keep trying to get better at managing my time. Or we talk about spending it, right? Like, it, like it's a resource that we have, and, and we have, like, a time account balance, and I guess it's kind of like that. Unfortunately, you never know, like, what the actual balance is like how much time do I have left? You can't just check your uh, an app on your phone to find that out, unfortunately. And you know what we do whenever we're bored? What do we do with time? We kill it. Like that is not a very nice way to treat your time, killing it. But we have this really strange relationship. The way that we talk about time is, I mean, if you step back, it's odd. I'm, I'm going to continue to use those words because I don't have better ones, but I, I just want us to recognize this kind of a strange way to think about time. But, you know, whenever we're really honest, one of the things that we recognize is time is something that we have no control over. I can't speed it up. I can't slow it down. I can't have less than I have. I also can't have more than I have. It's something, it's just the environment is part of the world that I live in, and I don't have any control of it. I can control myself. Kind of, you know, self-control is one of those things. We've got some, maybe not complete self-control, but I can control the things that I do with my time, but I can't control time myself. And, and yet one of the most precious things that we have is, is time. And so the way, the things that we do in the time that we have is, is the way that we really live out our true priorities. And, and the way that we can tell what our true priorities are is by looking at our calendars or looking at the way that we spend our time. Because that shows us what's really important to us, whether we acknowledge it or not. And, and you know, we hope the things that we spend our time on are the things that are most important to us, but a lot of times they're not right? There's inconsistency there. There certainly is for me. I'm guessing some of you have probably experienced that as well. But it shows us what really matters to us. And so that's what we're looking at today. And, and what can Jesus tell us about the way that, that we keep time? And, and so if you're looking at your calendar for the next few weeks and feeling like stuff is kind of out of control, that's where I am right now. Well, you're in good company because for really, for a significant amount of time in the early church, they were really out of control. They had very little control over the environment that they lived in. And, and so in the late first century, the, the leading up to the year 100, Christians in Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, were experiencing persecution. They were being persecuted. Um, they were being shunned. Some of their members, some of their leaders were being sent into exile, and, um, and they were even facing threats of arrest and violence and even death. And so in the midst of that circumstance where the Christians were facing those struggles, um, John, thought by many scholars to be the same John who wrote the Gospels, who's also the Apostle, um, wrote Revelation as a letter of hope to suffering churches. Revelation was a letter of hope. Now, does anyone think, you know, whenever you're kind of like going through your day and you're like, man, I'm kind of down, I'm feeling a little bit hopeless, I'm going to turn to Revelation, (laughs) 
Like, that would be... It, I think we could have a fascinating conversation after worship if that's you. But that's, that's not me. I don't, I'm guessing that's not most of us. Did you know, if you've ever, has anyone ever read all of Revelation? Did you know that it has a happy ending? I mean, there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff that you have to get through that's really hard to make sense of. But it has a happy ending. It's actually a letter of hope. And so this is what John talks about the occasion for his writing. And in Revelation 1, 9, he says this, I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution, and so he was experiencing that as well, and the kingdom and the patient endurance was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because he too had been sent into exile. He had been sent away to the island of Patmos because of his faith, because he was teaching it. He says, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so he's sharing in the persecution and he's writing a letter to them so that they might endure, so they might be able to hold on and keep going. And so he writes this letter of hope, which, uh, you know, has become interpreted a lot of different ways in the centuries that followed, but he writes this letter of hope and reminds them that despite their struggles in the present, that God is the one who holds the past and the present and the future. And that was a reminder they needed because everything, whenever they looked around, everything they saw told them that God was not in control. They, they would have seen that what it looked like was that Rome was in the control. They were, they were subjects of the Roman Empire, some, some of them citizens, some of them not citizens, some of them even slaves, but they were all subjects of Rome. Rome was the power that held everything. And, and for someone to say that Rome was not the ultimate authority, that's kind of like saying the sky is not blue. It's like, I mean, can can, can you see? I mean, that obviously the sky is blue. Obviously, Rome is in control. It's, it's the great, it spans the entire world that we know of. They're in control of everything. But what he was telling him is actually Rome is not. Despite what you can see, God is the one who holds all times. And even though it looks like Rome is in charge, they are not. And God is the one who holds the present as well as the past and the future. And so this is what he tells them, going back a few verses. Um, it's a letter, so he starts out by introducing himself, John, and then he says who it's to, whom it's to, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. From the one who was and is and is to come, reminding them that it may look like God is, that Rome is in, conchar- in charge right now, but it's actually God. It's always been that way, and it always will be. God is the one who's the ultimate authority in the world. He reminded them that Rome was not the ultimate authority in the world, that that was something that only God could do. And, and so he continues, he says, Greetings um, from the one who was and is to come, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And, and so what he's saying there is something that's really interesting. Do you think about, like, who's in charge of the people who are in charge? Who is he saying is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus, that, that, that Caesar is not ultimately the one who's in charge. The emperor is not the one who's ultimately in charge because he's got a boss, and it's Jesus. And, and often we think, you know, Jesus is Lord of heaven. He, he rules, he's, he's the Lord here in the church. He's the Lord of our Sunday mornings. But what John is saying is that it's not confined to that. He's actually the Lord of all the rulers of the earth. He's, he's not only the Lord of heaven and of the church, but of all kingdoms, of all times, in all places, the one who was and is and is to come is the ruler of everything. And so whenever we, we set foot on this property, we are in God's property. And you're like, yeah, okay, the church owns it. But then whenever you walk, whenever you drive, don't walk into Penn or Covell, but whenever you drive into Penn or Covell, that's also God's. Whenever you breathe in the air, that is God's. And Jesus is Lord of it all. 
And that's what we celebrate today. That's what we remember, is that today's Christ the King Sunday when we remember that Christ is Lord of all creation, of everything, of all time, of all space, of everything on earth and beyond. It's his. And one of the ways the early church remembered that is with the earliest Christian creed. And so if you were here at the beginning of service, whenever Jen was up here um, welcoming everyone, one of the things that we did, we said the Apostles' Creed together. But we started by declaring what we believe. And, and that came up uh, maybe around the 300s. And, um, and even earlier than that, one of the earliest creeds that Christians would use in order to declare their beliefs, what was most dear to them, is by saying this one, that Jesus is Lord. That, that was it. Just three words, Jesus is Lord. And in doing so, they declared what was really important to them. And it was actually, it, I mean, if, you, if you've spent a lot of time in church, that's like, I mean, yeah, that sounds like the kind of things Christians would say. And I don't even really know what it means because I've said it so many times that, you know, whatever. Yeah, he's the boss or something. But, but in the first century, whenever they would say that, it was actually pretty controversial. And it's part of the reason that they were facing persecution. Part of the reason that they were, were suffering was because they said that Jesus is Lord. That's the same word um, in Greek that they would use to describe the emperor. And, and, and so if Jesus was the Lord, if Jesus was the emperor, that meant Caesar was not. And so this creed became a political statement in saying, we know that, that you think Caesar's in control of everything, but he's not. Jesus is. They were denying the emperor and proclaiming Christ instead. This is how John says it. He says, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Do you know who is supposed to receive all the glory and dominion? The emperor. But who are these Christians giving it to? Some guy in Nazareth who was crucified 40, 50 years ago, but for some reason they are giving him the glory and saying he has dominion over everything. And so they were a threat. And yet they believed with all that they were that Jesus was Lord. And so even though it had consequences for them, that's what they proclaimed. And that's what John reminded them. He reminded them that no ruler, no nation, no disaster, no system, no matter how oppressive, no circumstance that they might find themselves in could change that truth, that Jesus is the one who reigns. And that's the truth that we continue to find ourselves in today. And, and, and it's difficult whenever we find ourselves in tough places. I know that, um, that there are still a lot of people who are struggling to find work. There are lots of people who are struggling to find workers. It's difficult to match those things up. There are a lot of people who, who have lost people. We've lost hundreds of thousands of people in our country over the last almost two years with the pandemic. And in spite of all of those things, whatever the appearance may be, we know that there's one king, and it's Jesus. And even though we may be struggling and suffering, that he is the one who rules. And yet if we say that, it also raises some questions. Because we say that he's already king, not that one day he will become king, not that one day he will be a ruler, but that he already is. And yet there's also a not yet. Because there's this difficult question, and, and I don't know if you've asked this before, and you know, it's probably not the kind of thing that you're supposed to say in church, but, but my mic has not been muted yet, and so I'm going to say it. It's like, if Jesus is already king, why is the world so messed up? Right? It's like, Jesus, I don't know, I mean, I don't know who elected you. I don't remember you being on the ballot four years ago or four years before. I guess, when was the last election? I don't really know. We've been living in a time war. But, but we're, it's like, okay, Jesus, like you're in control. Did you notice that there are a lot of people who are hungry? And did you notice there were all of these natural disasters and they were pretty bad? 
And have you gotten on Facebook lately? Because people are really mean there. And could you change that? You know, I mean, it's like, what's going on? And, and this is kind of the tension that Christians find themselves, is, is we believe that Christ is already king, and yet there's a not yet component to it as well. His reign, the reign of God, the, the kingdom of God begins with his resurrection. That As he was risen from the dead, his reign began. But there's a not yet component as well. It, it won't come in fullness until he returns. And that's another one of those things that, that if you've grown up in the church, you're kind of like, oh, when Christ returns, that's like something that I, I will pass on that, you know. That's because a lot of us who, who grew up in the church have heard like, you know, he's going to come back. Like, what's he going to find you doing whenever he comes back? If, if he came back Sunday morning, what's he going to, what's going to, you know, what, how did you spend your Saturday night? And what's he, that's, that's did anyone else hear that? And so that's, that's what we associate with it. And, and there's an element of that as well. I mean, John says as much. He says, look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. And, and so there is an element of, of which we do have to stand before Christ and, and be judged. And, and yet part, really what that comes from is that he's come to bring justice. He's come to make things right. And so whenever we are living in a way that causes things not to be right, we have to change those in order to be living in accordance with his will. And yet for Christians, this is such a, not only something that we have to be prepared for, but, but it's a sign of hope. So much so that, that in, if you look in the United Methodist Book of Worship in our, in our communion service, one of the things that we say um, that's in there every week, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will what? Come again. And that's not a message of like, beware, you know, like in uh, The Lion King. Uh, that's, I love that song. That's not what they're talking about, but it's actually like, this is our hope that he's died for us, that he's risen from the dead, and he will come again. Because the promise of Jesus' return is not that you have to be scared, but that he is going to make all things right, that he's going to set all things the way that God intended them to be in the beginning. And so if we fast forward to the end of Revelation, this is how John describes the vision that he sees. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. That's the promise of his return, that, that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that crying will pass away, that death will pass away, that pain will pass away, because he's coming to set all things right, to restore all things to the way that God intended them to be. That's our hope, and particularly whenever we're in situations like those early Christians found themselves in, of, of being persecuted, of suffering, of not knowing whether they were going to make it or what might happen to them or the people that they loved, they remembered that Christ was coming again. He's the one who is, who was, and is to come. And his plan and his desire and what he will bring to pass is that all things will be made right. And he'll wipe away every tear, every tear from our eyes. So, so we find ourselves in this tension of the in-between times. This is how Tish Harrison Warren describes it. She says, we live between D-Day and, and V-Day, referring to, to the invasion of Normandy and the space between that and then the day that, that victory in Europe was declared but in World War II. But, but we live in between those days. The victory is secured, but the war continues a little bit longer. And yet we are people who know what the outcome is. We're people who know who wins. And so we live differently as a result. 
This is what uh, Paul writes in, in Philippians chapter 3. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. As he he's ha- made all things subject to himself, as he rules over all, he will also transform us. And, and because of that, we are citizens of heaven, that we are citizens of his realm, of his rule. And if that's the case, if we are citizens of the kingdom, the kingdom of God and heaven are words that scripture uses more or less interchangeably. If we are citizens there, we will live differently than those who are not, right? I mean, if you're from a different country with different laws, then you live differently than someone who lives in in this country with these laws, right? I mean, that's how it works. Citizens of different places live differently. And if we are from, if our citizenship is in heaven, if we're citizens of God's kingdom, we will live differently as a result. That's probably a whole sermon series in itself. I'm not going to try to push all of that into one sermon. So we will get to get, get lunch and decorate for Christmas. But one way that we can do that, if Christ really is our king, if he really is the ruler is by subjecting our calendars to him, by giving our time to him, because Christians have a different way of keeping time. And so as you think about that, I mean, if you're someone who follows Jesus, if you say he he is your Lord and the Lord of all things, who is the Lord of your time? Is it him? Is it you? Is it your job? If you've got little kids, is it them? It probably feels like it. Who is the Lord of your time? How do you make those decisions? This is what author Tish Harrison Warren again says. She says, Christians exist in an alternative chronology. That word means something about time. The church has its own time. We have this different way of keeping time, and we call it the Christian year. You can also call it the liturgical calendar if you want to sound smart in front of your friends. Just a warning if you want to try that at lunch. It may also sound pretentious. It's hard. You know, it depends kind of on tone anyway. But, but the Christian year, and what that does is it patterns our calendar by what God has done in Jesus and in the Holy Spirit. It basically takes the way that we spend our time and patterns it after the things that God has done in history And, you know, we have different patterns that we follow in our calendars, right? Of course, there's January 1st to December 31st, the annual calendar. There's also the school year, right? In particular, if you're in school or if you have kids who are in school, you follow, you know, the school year determines, you know, like every decision that you make. Like, do we have to miss school? Can we go on vacation? Is it summer? Are the crowds going to be super bad at Disney World? Maybe we don't want to go then. We, We follow that calendar. And, of course, Mark mentioned earlier the most sacred of calendars, the college football calendar, right? I mean, you have to, I mean, if you're getting married in Oklahoma, you don't want to do it on Saturday of Bedlam unless you really don't care. I mean, either if you have no football friends, then it's great because, you know, everyone's occupied. But if you have football friends, like nobody shows up. But, but that's one of the most sacred calendars in our culture. And so we pattern our calendar after different things. And as Christians, we can pattern our lives after the things that God has done. And so there are two major cycles in the Christian calendar. Um, there's the Christmas cycle and the Easter cycle, and there are these two patterns of preparation, of celebration, and living out our faith, and, and then that repeats. And, and so this is what it looks like. I know that's a, a lot of text, but if you think of the year as, as a circle, we get this nice pie chart, and we are right 
here on this last sliver of the time after Pentecost. And, uh, and that's the day of Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday in the season after Pentecost. And next week, as Mark shared with us, we start Advent. Advent is a time of preparation for the coming of Christ, both his coming at Christmas, but also his second coming, of, of preparing our hearts, of being intentional about the way that we spend our time, uh, of reflecting on our lives and what's really most important to us, and, and then getting rid of the things that are not. And after that time, at sundown on Christmas Eve, we begin the celebration of Christmas. And so, you know the song on the 12, the 12 days of Christmas? Yeah, of course you know that. Do you want me to... Okay, I'm not going to sing it. But the 12 days of Christmas, those start on Christmas Day and, and go for the next 12 days. And, it's, and the, the coming of Christ is such a big deal that it can't be contained in just one day. And so the church celebrates that for 12 days. And, and we celebrate things like the things that happened in his early life, like his baptism. We'll celebrate that on, on January 9th. And, um, and, then we'll all, and then it also ends on, on the Epiphany, Epiphany Sunday. And after that begins, the season after Epiphany. That's like, that makes a lot of sense, right? The season after Epiphany Sunday is the season after Epiphany. And, and then one that you may be also familiar with is the season of Lent. And so that begins on a Wednesday night, Ash Wednesday, and it's a, a time that we remember our mortality. We remember our, our need for, sa- for a Savior and our sinfulness so that we can prepare our hearts for His death and resurrection at Easter. And so we spend 40 days doing that. Have you ever given up something for Lent? Then, then you've participated in the Christian calendar in some way. But, but it's a time of getting rid of the things that take us away from Christ, that, that make us focused on ourselves and, and taking, inviting in things that, that help us to put our focus on Him. And so we do that throughout those 40 days. It, there's an asterisk. It's 40 days, not counting Sunday. Anyway, I know it's kind of confusing. And then that leads us to Holy Week. And so that includes, that's the end of, of um, Lent. It starts with Palm Sunday. On Monday, Thursday, we remember Christ's um, washing his disciples' feet in the Last Supper. On Good Friday, we remember his crucifixion and death. And then on Easter, of course, we celebrate really what's at the center of our calendar, his resurrection from the dead. And that's, that's such a big deal. I mean, that's really at the heart of our faith. And so you can see that's not a small slice. The Easter celebration is 50 days. We call it the Great 50 Days. And in some traditions, it's such a big deal that in worship, they won't even kneel because it would be inappropriate to kneel in, in, in penitence during a time of celebration, whenever you're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And so that continues until Pentecost Sunday. And then if you're from Acts 2, I hope that you know that day. That's the day of the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. And, and also, do you know where it is in the Bible? Really? Like, no one's going to say it? It's Acts 2. That's, so that's where we get our name from. Oh, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll circle back. Then, uh, that was maybe a leading question. And then what comes after Pentecost? The time after Pentecost. I know. And so that goes all the way until Christ the King Sunday. But, but basically what that does is it takes the life of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit and, and allows us to set, our, to, to set our own personal calendars by that, to live according to the rhythms of his life. And, and what that does for us, worship scholar James White says, he says the liturgical year is a constant means of grace through which we receive God's gifts to us. And that's really the opposite of where we started, right? Time is something that we have to control and manage and spend and and sometimes kill. But instead, time becomes something that we can receive, a way that we can receive the things that God has done for us, where we can receive the gift of his coming at Christmas, where we can receive the gift of of his life, of his ministry, and, and really focus our lives on that during Lent. And at Easter, that we can receive the gift of new life through his resurrection, 
It becomes a way of receiving time instead of having to manage it. And as we align our calendars to the calendar of the church, we align our lives to the life of Christ. Instead of the drumbeat of our calendars and the football schedule or, or the school year setting the tone for everything, we're allowing him to set the tone for our lives. And as we do that, we're reminded that we are part of a reality that is so much greater than what we can see on our own. That's so much greater than any persecution we may face. It's so much greater than any power like Rome that the early Christians were facing. But it's the ultimate power in the universe that we are invited to be a part of, that we are invited to participate in, even today, even as we wait. And so this is going back to what John says. This is how he describes it. He says, To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, pre-serving as God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And, and that's such an important reminder that, that what's most important to and about our king is not his power, it's not his place, it's not a crown or something like that. It's his love. It's to him who loves us. What fundamentally defines who God is is love, a self-sacrificing love for us who rejected him offering himself for us. And what that tells us is that the most powerful force in the universe is love, no matter what the appearance may be. And so because of that, we say to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So here's some ways I want to invite you to live that out in the, in the coming week and in the weeks to come here, the action steps for this week. First, I want to invite you to listen to God's leading this week. And, uh, you know, maybe some of you, if you are um, with me, you're one of the under-functioning holiday people and, and you're just sitting around, you might have lots of extra time this week. And if you're one of the over-functioning people, you might be like, have your precise calendar for every moment. And at Tuesday at 4.35 p.m., I've got to get the turkey and put it into the refrigerator and let it thaw. I didn't do the math. I don't know if that's remotely enough time. But, you know, every single thing. But, but wherever you find yourself, take some time to listen over the next week. And maybe you will find that whenever you're gathered with family or however you're celebrating, in the midst of all the tasks that you have, you realize that there's somebody there who needs your attention. And, and if you give them your attention, then the turkey's not going to go in at, at 5.15 or whatever time, a.m., p.m. I don't know much about cooking turkeys. But if you do that, then something might happen in your calendar that feels like a loss. But if God is the Lord of your time, if Christ is the Lord of your calendar... And who are you going to listen to? There's probably a conversation that you need to have this week that is more important than whether the turkey comes out precisely on time, right? And so listen this week, and whenever you feel that nudge from God, change your calendar, whether it's written down or just in your head, and listen to where the Lord is leading you. Then I want to challenge you to make Advent a time of preparation and not just like, okay, I've got to buy all of these presents and we've got to get to all of these places at the right time, but actually making it a time to prepare your hearts, to actually anticipate the coming of Christ, to, to be attentive to what he is doing. Get, something, get an Advent wreath. That's a great way to do it. We, we light an Advent wreath in our, in our family every night at dinner, and, and we read a, a Bible verse and a reflection and say a prayer. That's a great way to do it. I've got an extra one. Nobody from 915 service took me up on it, so if you want my extra Advent wreath, it is yours. Just come find me after service. But, but look, find ways to seek God, to make Advent a time of truly preparing your heart for the coming of Jesus. 
And then one way that you can do that, every year we invite people to be a part of our Christmas Eve offering because 100% of it goes outside of our doors to do things that honor Jesus on his birthday. And so we invite everyone to give $1 more to him for his birthday than we spend on ourselves and our families. And so, um, you know, I know Black Friday started like eight weeks ago somehow this year. And, and so some of you have already started that. But, but as you approach, you know, the prime shopping season, um, isn't Prime Day come? Or is that all? Anyway. As you approach that, make a plan because it's really easy to just like spend a whole bunch of money and then be like, oh, wow, we just, we just uh, spent as much on Christmas as we spent on our last car. And, and so make a plan for how you and your family can honor Jesus on his birthday because whenever we do that, lives are literally saved. We're going to put in our 30th water well in just about two weeks. And, and then we also have done things like Project Winter Watch, giving sleeping bags to people who are homeless, who have to sleep outside in the winter. I mean, literally, we're saving lives. And so make a plan for how you'll do that. And as we go through Advent, we're going to do our best to equip you um, to do that as well. And, uh, you know, in the midst of the Christmas season, one of the really hard things is, is sometimes we want to try and make every little thing perfect, right? Like every present you get has to be like life-changing and, and it has to be the ultimate experience for the kids. And, and we have an idea. What if this year we all try to have just a decent Christmas? So here's a look at where we're headed. So that starts next Sunday. Pastor Mark is going to start us off. And we'll be asking, what if instead of trying to make everything perfect, we were decent to one another? What if instead of trying to have the ultimate Christmas, we really focused on the one who came for us? I hope you'll join us. Will you pray with me? God, we are so grateful for your love. And that that is the power at the heart of the universe and comes to us in Jesus Christ. And so, God, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive him, that you would make him the Lord of all that we are, of our time, and help us to live according to his rhythms. We thank you for his love. We thank you that no matter what it looks like, that he is the ruler of all. And we thank you that he taught us even how to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.